This episode of Do You Want to Hear a Story is intended for adult audiences. It may contain graphic descriptions and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. On February 9th, 2004, Maura took an unprompted trip away from her college campus. She emailed her professors to let them know that she'd be gone for the week. En route to Vermont, she crashed her car. A bus driver stopped to help, but Maura declined. He continued down the road to call for help, but by the time the police arrived on scene, Maura was gone. She has never been seen again. Do you want to hear a story? Will you give a few seconds of your time? Good evening, folks. Kennedy can die. The atomic power plant in the city of Kiev was damaged. How do you measure such an astonishing moment in history? The energy crisis who were gathered in South today. Do you want to hear my story? Sean, New Hampshire State Police, the Attorney General's Office, and the FBI are investigating along Route 112 where missing woman Maura Murray crashed her car and disappeared 15 years ago. The 21-year-old UMass Amherst student has not been seen since she was involved in that single-car accident on the night of February 9, 2004. Authorities are not saying what exactly they are looking for today or how long they might be there, but they did enter the investigation site with a jackhammer, and others could be seen wearing evidence collection suits. Some of Murray's family is en route to the scene, and some of them are already there. And We spoke with Maura's younger brother just minutes ago about this investigation. There's always a level of uncertainty with something like this. Um, I am optimistic that we may have finally found her. That's the only thing I could pray for. Um, but it's, you know, it's a waiting game at this point. It's, it's tough because it's, answers are hard to come by. You know, we can only, only be told so much, and that's been the story for 15 years. Of course, this is one of the most high-profile missing persons cases in New Hampshire in the last two decades. We will have much more on this as we get more details into the newsroom. Live in the studio, Adam Sexton, WMUR News 9. All right, Adam, thanks. A little background here. The investigation started in 2004 at the scene of the crash on the line between Woodsville and Haverhill. That's where a bus driver talked with a woman standing outside the car involved in a single vehicle crash. But when police arrived 19 minutes later, the car was locked and there was no one around. In the last year, a house near the crash scene was searched for the first time thanks to new owners who finally gave access to investigators. Murray's family says cadaver dogs recently pointed to possible evidence in the basement and that finding was supported by ground penetrating radar. The information was turned over to investigators. Her disappearance has sparked years of theories about what happened to her. The case. So the following I want to read to you is from mauramurraymissing.org. It's a website set up by her family in the hope of shedding some light on her disappearance. This is basically her story in a nutshell. And I think we can dig into it a little bit more. Cool. So, Maura Murray was born on May 4th in 1982 in Brockton, Massachusetts. She was the youngest daughter of Fred Murray and Laurie Murray. Maura grew up in Hanson, a small suburb on the south shore of Massachusetts in a working class family with plenty of guidance from her siblings, including her older brother Fred Jr., sisters Kathleen and Julie, and her younger brother Curtis. Her parents divorced when she was six. Maura was an overachiever that excelled, in, that excelled both academically and athletically. At the same time, she was active in her local community where she became known for her kind heart 
signature dimples and beautiful smile. She participated in nearly every sport, including competitive basketball, which allowed her to travel all over New England as a teenager. A fierce competitor, she consistently finished in the top tier of runners in the state of Massachusetts. She broke several long-standing school records, selected as the Boston Globe All-Scholastic in her cross-country. She qualified for the U.S. National Scholastic Outdoor Championships in the two-mile as a sophomore in 1998, finishing 33rd in the country. She graduated the top of her class at Whitman Hanson Regional High School and had her pick of colleges, both academically and athletically. However, she decided to accept a congressional nomination from the late Senator Edward Kennedy and join her sister... Oh, Teddy Kay. Yeah. Teddy Kay. And join her sister Julie at the prestigious United States Military Academy at West Point. She continued to excel in a rigorous military and academic program at West Point and established herself as a force of the cross-country and track teams. During her second year at West Point, Maura decided that the military was not for her and she transferred to the University of Massachusetts, where she decided to pursue a career in nursing. Smart move, I reckon. Mm. On the morning of February 9th, 2004, she submitted her nursing homework electronically and reportedly emailed professors stating that there'd been a death in the family and that she would leave campus for the next week. There was no death in the family, just for some context. Mm. She placed a call to the owner of a condominium in Barlett, which was a place that was special to her that she'd spent time at in the past. She packed a bag with toiletries, makeup, workout attire, school books, and several days' worth of clothes. So just for some context also for the listeners, Bartlett, New Hampshire, is not very far from Massachusetts. It's still in that northeast region of the country as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. So at 3.15 in the afternoon, she stopped at an off-campus ATM. She withdrew $280, which was nearly all of the money she had in her account. She then stopped at a liquor store and purchased about $40 worth of alcohol. According to authorities, she departed the Amherst, Massachusetts area around 4.30. She drove her satin north towards New Hampshire. She didn't tell anyone that she what her plans were, why she was heading to New Hampshire on the Monday afternoon. So you would probably say at this point, suspicious behaviour for this for this person. It seems to be. Hmm. Based on everything that you've said so far, already, like if I knew nothing else, this seems off character and something that, yeah. Something. There's quite a few, and that's why I thought it was important to start this story with, I guess, the official story, because this is from, hmm. from her website. Yep. And then when we dig into a little bit more, it becomes... Yeah, if we're talking about suspicious behavior, there's definitely yeah. patterns of it. Yeah. So around 7.30 that night, a resident of Haverville called the police and stated that there'd been an accident near her home and that a car was stuck in the ditch. Shortly after, a bus driver named Butch Atwood drove by and spoke to Maura. He offered her help and asked if she needed him to call the police. She declined both offers and said that she'd already called AAA. Knowing that there was no cell reception in the area... Atwood drove home, which was only about 100 yards east of the accident, parked his bus, went inside to call the police. He called 911. That call was placed at 7.42pm. So it's only 10 minutes or so. 15 minutes, yeah. Yeah. When asked if she was injured, Atwood told the police she appeared shaken up and that the airbags had been deployed, but he saw no blood. By the time the officer arrived on the scene at 7.46pm, she was gone. The officer noted that the car had been locked and there was a box of red wine behind the driver's seat, as well as stains on the ceiling and the door. A Coke bottle that appeared to have a red liquid in it. Mm. He also noted that there appeared to be a, a rag stuffed in Maura's tailpipe. 
Later, it was learned that this was something that Fred, her dad, had advised Maura to do in order to avoid being ticketed by police for the excessive smoke coming out of the tailpipe. <laughs> there you go for anyone out there who's smoke, who's tailpipe smoking too much. There's quite a few mentions of her car being fairly beaten up. Yep. So the officer asked the bus driver for assistance locating Maura and suggested he drive west of the accident and search some of the roads in the French Pond area. A state trooper also responded to the scene and searched the roads west of the accident site. Fire and EMS also responded. EMS was dis- dismissed within minutes, perhaps because there was no one at the scene to treat. The eight firefighters briefly searched in the accident scene before proceeding back west and returning to the fire station. As far as anyone is aware, no one searched east of the accident scene. So, 727 Faith Westerman happens upon Moira. Mm-hmm. At 7.40, by the, in the next 19 minutes, she's gone. Because at 7.46 when they arrived, she was gone. Exactly. When you think about stuff like that, these people are trained to search and rescue and all this kind of stuff, and they're, you know, this kind of stuff. Someone just vanishes into thin air in 19 minutes. Well, that's, that's the underlying problem i suppose with her disappearance you know there's a number Mm. of which we will dig into shortly of theories as to what happened i I mean it's it's okay to mention at this point nobody knows so this was in 2004 nobody knows where she is what happened to her still to this day yep yep so the bus driver's brief interaction with her was the last known sighting and since that time there has been literally no trace of her no activity on her mobile phone or in her bank accounts I just asked her how she was. She said she was shaken up. I couldn't see any blood on her face. And she was uh, shaking like this. I says, uh, okay, I'm going to go call the police. So there's a fair bit to unpack with her disappearance, but I want to give you a little bit more backstory on the days leading up to, to when she disappeared. Sounds fair. So on February 7th, which was two days before she disappeared, Fred, who was her dad, met up with her with the plan to help her look for a brand new car because like I said there was there's been multiple mentions of the fact that her car was fairly beat up and just totally unreliable after they'd spent their day looking at cars he returned to the quality and where he was staying they went out or he went to the Amherst Brewing Company for dinner and around nine o'clock that night Maura and Fred went to pick up her friend Kate where they went back to the brewing company for drinks that night so before Maura and Kate dropped Fred off at the quality inn for the night they stopped at the liquor store again Maura and her friend went out to party that night, she crashed her dad's rental car. So Fred rented another car the next day, picked up his daughter, dropped her off at the campus at around 1.30pm. And then on February 8th, Maura told her father she went around the corner, hit some sand, skidded, and that was how the, the accident in the rental car happened. She hadn't, ha- well, she claimed that she hadn't had anything to drink for a while, but she was also never given a breathalyzer or a ticket at that point. Hmm. So I think it's important to mention at this point because it's mentioned it's mentioned in almost every piece of source material you can find around this that just a year earlier in 2003 she was in, arrested for improper use of a credit card under $250. Oh, okay. Yeah. So not the not the clean skin that that I'm picturing in my head. To be honest, I was in two minds if this was necessarily an important part, but I think when you start to unpack what happened and where she went or what happened to her or where she is now if she's alive or not i think this is just a small detail that's worth knowing i think so yeah definitely in the police logs the owner of the credit card reported some unknown expenses 
but she also was quick to mention that she hadn't lost her card and that it wasn't stolen. Hmm. So the, Interesting. the story was that when they were able to track down the purchases and led it back to Mora, when she was confronted and asked how she received the credit card number, she admitted that she'd noted the number down off the bottom of a receipt. So I'm not sure, I couldn't find all the backstory if, if she was a customer at like a restaurant or a cafe or something, or if she was working in a place, but that was essentially how she got it. So she, she just copied down someone's credit card information. She didn't actually have the credit card. She hadn't stolen it or found it or anything. And you're right in saying this is an important detail because it paints a little bit of a picture of it. It gives us a little bit of an insight as to what was going on aside from all of the, the stuff you mentioned at the beginning where she was doing well at track, she was doing well at this, she was doing well at that. She sounded like pretty grounded at the beginning of this story. Well, that's the thing. I think with most of these types of cases, especially missing person cases where it can't be definitively said one way or another if the person's dead or if they're alive, if they're living somewhere under another alias, it's important to know... I guess these little one percenters. Yep, agreed. So now it's February 9th, and with the threat of a snowstorm looming over the area, classes at the university had been cancelled, and that's why she was emailing her professors all her work, Mm -hmm. so she had to submit everything electronically. This was also the same time where she's emailed her professors saying that she was basically not going to be in for the next week because there'd been a death in the family. Mm Mm-hmm. No one can really say one way or another why she came up with that. I suppose it's the easiest way to get out of going to class. Yeah. No one's going to question that if that was the reason why you're not around. It's a, it's a staple of excuses, isn't it? So she drove to an ATM and she withdrew $280, which was basically all she had. She then went on to spend $40 at a liquor store on Bailey's Kahlua vodka and a box of red wine. Additionally, though, she did stop at the Amherst DMV to pick up the insurance work for her dad's car which had been damaged in the crash the day before. It's an interesting thing there um, because a combination of those alcohols together, that paints a picture of a, a like a night where either you're planning to get very, very, very drunk mm. or you're planning to be drinking with multiple people who drink different types of alcohol. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm. I mean, I also think it's just a pick of like cheap alcohol, no? She didn't True. have a ton of money to spend. Do we know if she was a, had an alcohol problem? Nothing definitive, but there is, there is quite a lot of mention in these last couple of days leading up that she was either buying alcohol or she was drinking or she was at a party. Mm. So there's yeah. speculation. But. Yeah, because just like with no other details, you're either planning, as I said, that's, that's, that sounds like someone who's planning on getting very drunk because they're crying for help or they've got some things that they're dealing with and they just want to get wasted. Yep. Or multiple people, that's alcohol for multiple people. Yeah. I, I, yep. I'm just looking at everything. I would say it's the first one. Mm. Mm. I don't I think agree. she was big because it was later that day, literally 4.30 in the afternoon, she calls and leaves herself or she calls to her own voicemail there's no mention of what the actual message was that she left on her voicemail yeah right but for some reason she calls her own voicemail yeah that sounds like somebody else calling her voicemail to me yeah so there's only a very small period of time between her taking out the cash from the atm buying the alcohol leaving this mysterious call on her voicemail yep and then heading out on this trip so it was 7 30 that night that she wrecked her car the only clue that she left behind that the police 
had as anything noteworthy was a printout of a map with directions to this complex up in Vermont. What kind of complex? A condo complex, like an, oh, yeah, an yep. apartment. Yep. yep, okay, yep. Again, there wasn't a ton of damage. The windshield had been cracked. There was a little bit of damage on the driver's side, front end and the front passenger side, the rear driver's side and the rear passenger side of the vehicle. But when investigating, police found the car locked. So I I don't know. I haven't been in a car accident, but if my car's all banged up and it's on the side of the road, I guess you would lock it when you leave. I don't know. It's just, yeah, it's just, I'm just trying to like play the role of a detective here and I'm wondering because obviously that dude happens upon her and she says she's fine and then he calls the cops and then 15 minutes later she's mis- disappearing. Yep. Yeah, and the red wine's still on the back seat. So the first thing that the police usually do in this situation, trying to get an understanding of those few days leading up to something like this happening is they go to her cell phone records. Yep. They do have a record that says she called the one of the owners of this condo complex yep. that was up for rent, mm-hmm. but still no one was able to shed any real light on her plans. I don't know if she actually spoke to the owner. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the police actually went and spoke to the owner, but there was no real definitive, yes, I want to rent this place and this is where I'm heading type of thing. Yep. So it was the next day, basically, after the the accident that she was declared a missing person. And that's when, I guess, the police start doing a little bit more digging into everything and they find out that she's totally packed up her dorm room also. Yeah, right. Placed on top of one of the boxes was a typed letter to her boyfriend detailing all the problems in their relationship. Hmm. So, I, I don't know, what are your thoughts at this point? She's got some... She's running away. Hmm. I reckon there are people out there that have often pondered this. What if I just disappeared? They don't want to kill themselves. It's like a, a few steps before killing yourself. But stuff's going on that you want to... It's, a, it's an escape, which alcohol, that's that's like a key trigger there. Like, that's why people, a lot of people have drinking problems. There's something that they want to escape from. She's going to a different location and she's telling her boyfriend that there's some stuff going on that she wants to deal with. That's why you would want to disappear. And... If you really wanted to, back in 2000, what is this, 2003, 2004? Yeah. 2004. Back then, you could disappear. Yeah. And I mean, that's how, it's so hard to say and it's so hard to speculate on something like this because it is, it's someone's life, it's someone's daughter and they're still 16 years later with absolutely no type of closure on what's happened. But Mm -hmm. when you start looking at all the things leading up to her disappearance, the the withdrawing all of the money even though mm-hmm. it's not a ton of money mm-hmm. it puts her in a position where she never has to use that card ever again she never mm-hmm. has to go to an atm or swipe that card in a shopping center correct she you know cutting ties with her boyfriend maybe that puts him in a position where he's not going to maybe he's not going to chase after her anymore or something and if but if he does she's at least given him the courtesy of which is why people leave suicide notes she's doing a courtesy there of hey I'm not happy. Obviously, you, if you're going to disappear, you're not going to tell somebody you're disappearing. It kind of defeats the purpose. Um, mm. That's what it sounds like to me so far. The interesting thing, though, is when they searched her car, they they realized that all her debit cards, credit cards, and mobile phone were missing. Thrown, thrown out? 
cut, cut, up, cut up and thrown out. Like I've, when if you like, if what you're saying is correct and you are withdrawing all your cash, you never have to use your card again. Then, then if if you're not using a card again, you throw it out, you cut it up, and you get rid of it. I agree with that. I'm just thinking if you're trying to make a, con- a conscious decision so that people don't come looking for you, maybe you would leave all of that stuff behind. No, I think if you left that, I reckon if you leave it behind, it's more like something's happened to you rather than you disappearing. Like, is, but isn't, it, isn't, isn't that what she might want, though? Mm, it de- well, again, we're only conjecturing, but put it this way, if I was wanting to disappear, I would want that. To me, that means every trace of me disappears with me. Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking, like, I, I, don't, I don't want to disappear, but if, no. I, what, if I was to disappear or if I wanted to, I wouldn't want people spending the next 20 years wondering where I was. And I just think when you take your cards and your phone and stuff, it it shows like a conscious decision was made. That's right. That's right. Whereas, again, I don't want this to happen, but Mm. wouldn't you rather all your loved ones being able to maybe just accept the fact that it was, that you were gone and it was over and you don't want that little voice of doubt in their head saying, they might be out there somewhere living another life. I don't well, that's, know. That's a rational example. That's a rational um, way of thinking about it. But I guess you would you would argue that potentially she's not thinking very rationally, which is why we're here. I guess. Quite possibly. Yeah. So it was a couple. You know, the the next day they spoke to they again trying to get a handle on what's happening, what's been happening in the days leading up, and her dad. Even though her dad moved out when her parents got divorced when she was six, she still had a really close relationship with him, and he was up there with her at that point in the hotel. And he, all that he kind of had to say was, "I know that she was really upset the day before for having crashed the car." You know, I think the police were trying to find out, you know, was she depressed? What was going on in yep. her life? He didn't have a ton to. He didn't have a lot to say other than, "I know she was upset about crashing the car." The way I felt was just the the world just stopped. Your daughter's missing. She's in an accident. She's in the woods, way up, and not in in New Hampshire. The police don't seem to know where she is. And then two days after her disappearance, Maura's boyfriend, his name's Billy Roush, who at this point he's stationed in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, he receives a voicemail. The message basically, uh, in and of itself, was just uh, a woman breathing and then possibly a whimper or some sort of noise at the end which we believe to be her so six days after the disappearance a massive search now is launched in involving everybody tracking dogs helicopters train searches local and state police state state fish and game officials because it becomes super apparent now that we've got no idea where she is you know yep we talk about it just before that small period of time where the bus driver saw her. The police were called within minutes. The police Six, were out there within 16 minutes. 16 minutes later, she's gone. Yep. Yeah, weird. So the search covered roughly twenty a 20-mile 20 area along Route 112. Not a single footprint was found in the snow. It was almost as if she literally disappeared into thin air. The tracking yep. dogs... This was the interesting thing. The, the tracking dogs lost her scent only about 100 feet away from the accident in the middle of the road. Yeah, right. So that underpins a lot of the theories that she either kept walking and they just lost the scent for whatever reason, she hitchhiked a ride, or one of the major theories is there was an opportunistic killer out and she was mm. abducted at that point. 
Yeah, that that last one seems less likely because all signs point to that this is a planned disappearance. It would be the biggest coincidence if just at that point in time an opportunistic you know murderer comes across yeah yeah it seems more likely to me that it was all planned at that point she's getting in another car and disappearing yeah so that's it i mean it's now 16 years since her disappearance and the police are really no closer now than when they were back then to actually having a definitive what happened to Maura Murray. Mm-hmm. Like we've kind of alluded to throughout, though, there is quite a few theories as to what happened. The The first one is that she was abducted, which mm-hmm. the only way I can see that actually being the case is if the car accident was potentially caused by someone chasing her. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't think she crashed her car, got out of the car, walked off, and someone was driving by and said, ah, I might just pick this person up. The only way it makes sense to me is if she was being chased and and that was what caused the crash and then she's got out, she's run off and they've gone after her. Mm. Yep. Others think that she did plan that night to basically commit suicide. So she kind of, you know, like we've kind of spoken Mm -hmm. about, she took all her money out, she's bought this alcohol, cut ties with her boyfriend in one way or another. Like a leaving Las Vegas situation. Yep. Some think that the car accident caused her maybe a concussion maybe she's hit her head and that's set her off into the forest that wasn't far from the road mm. a lot of people think this when, when in the forest she's basically succumbed to the elements and and died of you know yeah but the cold yeah or but you'd find no her food you'd or something find like that. her no you would think so mm. and this is the one again it's impossible to say but this is the one that seems to carry the most weight online a lot of people do think that she's used this as a cover to leave and start a new life a lot of people think she's now in canada mm living a new a new life with a new name yep it's obviously impossible especially for you and i to to guess what happened to her mm. the problem with a lot of these missing people cases though is i think people like to be involved yeah so there was there, yeah. there was quite a few reports after the fact you know in the the following weeks where people were calling up saying that they'd seen her here seen her there yeah which again i think people just like to get themselves involved in these type of things yeah and that's and that's usually I think I may have seen someone who may have looked like her walking here. A lot of thinks and mays yep. and coulds and whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So I think this is a really good point to mention a journalist. His name's James Renner. Yep. He's been responsible in the last few years to breathing a lot of new light into the case. And the theory of her disappearing to Canada comes largely from I guess his investigation. So there's a few things that he's been quoted saying that I think are definitely worth worth mentioning. So he's very much of a believer that someone met Maura to pick her up on the road, mm-hmm. take her to Canada mm-hmm. to start a new life. Mm-hmm. And he's basically he's said outright that he doesn't believe that she was met with any foul play, mm. which also, I guess, lends some weight to the theory of how she was able to disappear so quickly. Well, also, I'm just thinking, if you want to you like if you're thinking about like because when people plan things that doesn't necessarily mean they're planning them very wise and very smartly so maybe the Mm -hmm. whole crashing the car or or riding the car off or whatever was part of the whole ruse you never you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. drive your car off the road deploy the airbags do what you need to do blah 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 i mean you don't know that the bus driver is going to come 
upon you and say hello and whatever but like the door was like the car was locked so yeah she's gotten out of the car and locked her car off and then disappeared right no it all sounds like part of the plan doesn't it it feels to me that if you've hit your head and you've got a concussion you're not making those type of decisions to say i'm leaving my car now i better lock the car and i better take with me my cards and my phone yep and leave a box of wine in the back seat right mm. So this is a direct quote from James Renner. He says, the only way that this could have happened, talking about her going off and starting a new life, the only way this could have happened is if Maura knew the driver and there was no time wasted for conversation. So this tandem driver who would have been driving ahead of Maura, if they were ahead and saw the accident in the rearview mirror and they were just past, um, it's called Bradley Hill Road, Mm The next place they could turn was on Route 116, and he's done the math. It takes approximately seven minutes to drive to Route 116 and then back to the scene. So I guess his theory is potentially in this idea, the car accident wasn't planned. These two were driving together. Mm -hmm. But I guess he's trying to make up for the time between the bus driver calling the police and the police getting out there. That's right. And and we already know she's not a great driver. Right. Mm. He also says that he believes in one of his theories that she could have been running away to protect herself and an unborn baby. Right. So this is another direct quote from him. She ran away to survive to protect herself and, if the police are correct, her baby. And talking about the motive to remain quiet for 11 years, can you get anything better than protecting a kid? What wouldn't you do? That's certainly one way to avoid any custody troubles. Mm. Mm. Which now turns our attention to what was really going on between her and the boyfriend. Right. So, lastly, this is the last quote I think is important to include about James Renner. And this is just, I think this is what kind of piqued his interest in the case to begin with. So, he, so this is the quote. He then started, he's talking about someone, he was at a bar talking to someone. So, he started talking to me about this missing girl who had gone to West Point and then to UMass. I hadn't heard about it at the time, and he explained to me what I now know is the Maura Murray case. He told me that it was an open secret among people who knew her personally at UMass, that she ran off on her own to get away from an abusive relationship. He said that he knew people that knew her and that had been in on the whole thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, but would they remain silent for all these years if it's now like if her family's worried about her? Like, yeah. Well, that's always the case for... Because there's definitely been mentioned that maybe her parents know where she is, but her dad is a massive advocate and there's plenty of online interviews with him and they've got this website set up and i saw an interview with him where he directly speaks about if there's any type of evidence i'm, I'm up there the next day i'll drive through the night to be there mm-hmm. to speak with the people so it's hard to imagine that the parents know anything mm. and that is a hard thing to think if you were to totally leave and cut yourself off that you wouldn't communicate with your parents especially mm-hmm. when by all accounts they had a really good relationship if nothing if at nothing else if you are going to disappear, you send a note to them or you get word to them, I'm fine, don't come looking for me, everything's okay. You know what I mean? Well, speaking of that, this is probably the most interesting thing that I could find that directly involved this journalist, James Renner. Mm -hmm. So he claimed to have received an email with the subject, Stop Looking, from someone with the name of Ray, and I can't, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but it's Ray Ramal. That sounds about right. Which which is an anagram for Maura Murray. Right. That's a very clever thing to do. 
Now, the email contained only coordinates to the north slope of Mount Cardigan, specifically the Desolation Trail area. So his theory now thinks that those coordinates lead to her body. Right. But volunteers have been there to search the area and apparently have to turn back due to heavy snow. So I don't know if the police have been involved with looking at that or if they, if they would take something like that seriously. Right. It's hard to say. Right. I, without the coordinates, I'm, that's... I mean, it definitely adds to the suspense of this story if he, if that was more herself sending that type of email. Mm-hmm. But then again, maybe she sends those coordinates just to do mm-hmm. exactly what it's done and put him on this trail of thinking yep. that those are the coordinates to where her body is. Yep. I don't know. Maybe. So just to add also to the web of what's been happening leading up to her disappearance, there's another man in her life, according to, to Rena. So the police did speak to him. His name was Hassan Baghdadi. He was the assistant coach of the UMass track team. After her disappearance, he told them that she had dropped hints that she'd planned to disappear during a private conversation. Mm -hmm. If this was all to be believed, she was apparently going to a cabin that was owned by the UMass Outing Club in the White Mountains, somewhere that he frequently joined the club on similar trips. So again, there seems to be be quite a few individual people in her life that claim to have known that she was planning something like this. Uh, It's hard to say and it's hard to speculate. So at the beginning of this podcast, you heard the news clip and for the first time in a very long time, her case, I guess, started to get a little bit more buzz around it. It was April 2019 that the state police summoned the Murray family to a meeting to discuss their searches under a home in the area close to where Maura had the wreck and went missing. So this area was subject of speculation for many years after her disappearance. And there was different stories, but for some reason, the owners of that property would never give their permission to the police to search the property. And they never had enough evidence to ever get a warrant or have a real, you know, convicting reason to go in there and search the place. Mm -hmm. And it's quite sad because I think a lot of, well, I know there was interviews that we saw in that news clip with her dad and her brother. Everyone was really kind of pinning a lot of hope on them potentially finding something under this house. They did the search. They dug up a lot of concrete. There was basically nothing there, obviously. So we're still here a year later from then with no real type of concrete evidence. Mm -hmm. I think this is the most interesting way that I can finish this podcast. And it's going back to her boyfriend, Billy Rausch. So in the time since her disappearance, he's had a real interesting life, I suppose. Mm. So he's been long named in several physical and sexual abuse related incidents over the last few years. Records of these incidents were kept quiet because they were subject of a grand jury proceeding. It is now public knowledge and no longer simply rumor though that he was indicted and tried on some of these cases. The scary part is the transcript of the case has now been sealed, but there's been plenty of mention of it online where he specifically, whilst choking his victim, would refer to her as Mora mm. while saying, you're a bitch, you're a whore. At this point, it still remains to be seen whether he'll be, become a person of interest in her disappearance, though. I'm going to be up here all the time. I'm going to follow up any lead that a local gives me. I'm trying to do everything I can do. Uh, my conscience wouldn't... Uh, I wouldn't be able to stand myself if I didn't. I wouldn't be able to look at a picture of Mara. 
if I knew if I knew that I wasn't doing everything I could possibly do, you know, <laughs> you know, it's just whatever time I have uh, left, that's, that's what I'm going to do with it. She was my buddy, you know, and I don't have my buddy. I'm just my buddy. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's story. If you've enjoyed the podcast, we'd greatly appreciate you taking the time to subscribe, rate, and review. As a special bonus for all of our listeners, we've included the first few minutes of our brand new show, Heists. Episode one is the Antwerp Diamond Heist. If you search Heists now, you'll find the first three episodes available. Specialized Diamond Police, Patrick Pays and Agim de Bruca, responsible for the Antwerp Diamond District, a small three-block square area in Antwerp, Belgium. Around 80% of the world's rough diamonds pass through. Under 24-hour police surveillance monitored by 63 security cameras, in 2003, roughly $3 billion worth of gem sales were reported in Antwerp. I say reported because in a place like the Diamond District, you can bet not everything comes with a receipt. On the morning of February 16, 2003, the specialized Diamond Police would receive a call. The vault in the Diamond Center had been compromised. Now, this is only one of the most secure vaults on the planet, home to hundreds of millions of dollars worth of diamonds, cash, gold, and other precious gems. With 10 layers of security, two stories underground, cameras both in and outside of the vault, a combination dial on the door with over 100 million potential combinations, a key lock that requires a foot-long key, a three-ton solid door designed to withstand over 12 hours of constant drilling. Not that that matters, as it also has a built-in seismic sensor that would trigger an alarm the second drilling started. Two metal plates on the wall and the door that create a magnetic field, preventing the door from being opened without an alarm going off. Behind all of this is a steel grate door requiring another key, and after all of this, behind both doors, you're in the vault, finally faced with another camera, a light sensor, a heat sensor, both of which are designed to trigger an alarm at the slightest variation in either light or temperature. Imagine how the Diamond Squad felt hearing the vault had been compromised. And now, folks, it's time to say thanks again for dropping in. We hope you'll make this a weekly visit. We finally hope you enjoy the evening as much as we've enjoyed having you here. Carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Good night, now.